All right, if you got a Bible, as always, open it up to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We are in this series of messages in the Gospel of John, and hope you've enjoyed it so far. Now I think we're in week four, and just going through this book, and it's going to take us a couple years, like I said, and we're still in chapter one, and I think we'll be in chapter one for like seven weeks, um, and then we'll get into chapter two, and then that'll help us get into Easter, which is crazy. Easter is not that far away, y'all, uh, which is just nuts, already thinking about this year and moving into it, but we're really, really excited about that, and I can't wait to do the Easter message. That's all I'm going to tell you right now. All right, that's just a precursor. You got you to gotta, you gotta come. You got to make sure, and we'll be talking more about Easter in the next few weeks and how you can register for that. But today we're going to be in John chapter one, verses 14 through 18. And we're looking at a specific passage that helps us understand a lot about not only who Jesus was and who Jesus is, but what Jesus did. And this is a very, very important theological part of the, uh, the book because it helps us understand what the is theologically called the incarnation when Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we've kind of been going back and forth, as I've said, the word and the witness, the word and the witness, and you're going to see a little bit more of that today. And then we'll get into the witness some more next week. And I promise you, you do not want to miss next week's message as we talk about John, the witness. That's going to be, they're all great, man. I mean, come on, they're just going to be good. So let's go John chapter one, verse 14. We're going to hit this, or, you know, I'm just going to give you one verse and then we're going to dig into it. It says, and the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this is one of those doctrines, like I was just referencing a second ago, that is so important to the truth about the claims of Christianity. Because we've made a couple claims so far. One is that Jesus was God, that he's always been God that he is co-eternal with God. He is with God and he was God and he made everything. And, and now the second part of that truth, which is just as crazy, is that God actually became man. That God put on flesh and dwelt among us. And again, the theological term, like I have said, is the term incarnation, when God became man. And the words there, in, just, you know, in, and then carne means flesh. So if you've ever been to a Mexican restaurant and you've ordered in carne, right? Or you've ordered, a, that means flesh. You're just eating meat. Praise God to the glory of God, right? And so this idea of incarnation, that word, comes from God incarnated. He, he put on flesh. Now, the reason why that is so important, we'll get to later, but Christianity falls completely apart if God didn't put on flesh. And so this truth of what John the, uh, sorry, I, I get myself confused here. John the apostle now is telling us is that Jesus, he's God. He's the word and he put on flesh. Now, what's interesting is this word here when he says dwelt among us. John, and I'll show you some Old Testament references again in a second, and I keep doing that every week. I feel like I'm not going to apologize because I shouldn't apologize. That's a weird thing to say, but I'm going to do it again, all right? Uh, Exodus chapter 34, and so we'll go there in just a second. But John is using these words here on purpose. And what I mean by that is John is using the word dwell 
because he is picking up on some Old Testament themes that you may not have understood, and I honestly didn't completely understand in English. Because the word dwelt here in Greek, and I'm not going to try to say it in Greek, um, but it's the, it's the word that is the Old Testament equivalent to tent or tabernacle. Now, if you know your Bible or you know your Old Testament history, when God freed the people of Israel out of Egypt, and I've referenced that several times in this message series, and they were journeying onto the promised land before the temple was ever built, God would tabernacle among them. He would literally, they had a, the, the tabernacle was like a tent. And so this idea of dwelt literally is the word became flesh and pitched a tent among us is what he's getting at here. And so if you were a Hebrew person, this Greek word here for tabernacle, which is spelled, I'll just give it to you. Well, I'll, I'll try skeno, skeno, S-K-E-N-O-O, is very similar in writing to the Hebrew word Shekinah. Now, if you've ever been around church, you probably have heard the Shekinah glory of God. And the Shekinah glory of God is so closely related to this word tabernacle or tent. And the reason is because they called it that is when God dwelt among him, that was his glory dwelling. And so the concept of what John the Apostle now is saying is something like this. If you thought God had some Shekinah glory going on before, when he was tabernacling in a tent, you ain't seen nothing until he put on some flesh. There was a tent, now is a body. And so John is picking up on that theme, and that's why the very next thing he says is dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. We've seen his glory. See, back then they thought when they saw the tent, when they saw the tabernacle, they were seeing the glory. It was a physical manifestation of God's glory, of his presence. And so the whole idea of Shekinah glory, again, it's like when Moses saw God, when he went up on the mountain, when he got the, the Ten Commandments and he came down, the Bible described it as though his face was glowing. And so there was like he was radiating, ironically, light, right? And so Shekinah glory was this idea that when when the tent or the, the presence of God was dwelling, was tabernacling, they could see the glory. And John is saying that this glory is greater than that one. Because that one wasn't God's physical presence. This one is. So we've seen his glory. And then he phrases it, glory as of the only son from the father as of the only son from the father. Now he'll say it differently in verse 18, and I'll point it out again there, but you need to know something about this word only. It's the Greek word monogenes, which mono, you should probably know, means one. And genes is where we get our English word for genus. Now, if you've ever studied biology, genus is a type or a group or a kind, right? I didn't say genius, but, but genius is a type of person, right? Which 
Maybe you know one. I don't. I'm joking because I was saying I'm not a genius. That's my way of self-deprecating humor. All right. But genius is saying there's a type of person who has smarts, who has education. And so this idea of genus is, oh, there's this type of animal or this group of animal. And again, if you study biology or any kind of history and, and that idea of science, it's you got these different kinds. Well, the idea that Jesus is a monogenase means he's one of an only kind. There's no other kind in his category. He's not one of a group. He's one of a kind. You see what I'm saying there? If you've ever played poker, you got like three of a kind. You got four of a kind. Well, when it comes to Jesus, he's one of a kind. And one of a kind beats four of a kind in a full house all day, right? So, so here's, again, here's what John the Apostle is saying. What's the big deal about Jesus becoming flesh? What's the big deal about him being the only son from the Father? He's saying he's unique. He's a monogenes. He's the only kind. He's the only one. There's no one like him. And we've seen his glory greater than what they saw God's glory when, they, when God tabernacled amongst them before. He's tabernacled amongst us now, and we've seen his glory. And we've seen more of his glory. Why? Because he's full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Again, the doctrine of incarnation is, is pretty radical in the sense that God is not, or Jesus is not half man and half God. He's fully man and fully God, hundred, hundred. The best way to think about it is divinity puts on humanity. And so he, he wasn't any less divine. And what's amazing, and even now as he sits in heaven, he's not any less human. Jesus will and always forever will be God and man. And he's full of grace and truth. He's fully God and man. Now, these two ideas of grace and truth, we tend to think that they are opposed to each other. Like you got grace or you got truth. But in God, they're not opposed. And this is why you think, man, there's no way you could be fully man or fully God. Well, in Jesus, you can. There's no way you could be fully truthful or fully graceful. In Jesus, you can. And this is a theme throughout the Old Testament that describes the qualities of who God is. And in fact, this is what I was referencing earlier. If you want to turn there, you can, but I'll just get it for you quickly here on the screen. Exodus 34, verse 5 and 6. It says the Lord, now listen to how, this is what's crazy to me. Listen to how familiar the themes of this are to what you just read in John 1. And the Lord descended. Hello. The word became flesh. He went from up there to down here. The Lord descended, Exodus 34 says, in the cloud and stood with him there. That's the idea of tabernacling. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him, talking about Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Now, I love this next phrase. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, here's why I pointed out that verse to you. Steadfast love and faithfulness 
is simply another way to say grace and truth. Steadfast love is the Hebrew word has said. It means loyal love. It means gracious love. It means love that you don't deserve. It means God is loyal to you when you're not loyal to him. It means God is everlasting in his, he's, he's steadfast. It never goes away. And so when God showed up to Moses back in Exodus 34, what he said about himself was these two characteristics. I got love and I got faithfulness. And when Jesus shows up, what John says about him is he's got these two characteristics. He's got grace and he's got truth. And those are the same biblical ideas. Grace, what is grace? Grace is God's steadfast love to you. What is truth? God is the same always. Isn't that faithfulness? Truth is truth, is it not? And this is what is so crazy in our culture today. We don't even know what truth is because now we talk about things that are, well, that's true for you and that's true for me. And that's just, you know, makes us feel good sometimes. But what's true for you cannot be true for me if what's true for you is the opposite of what's true for me. What's true? Right? This is why I always joke when people say, well, yes, true for you. What's true for me? All right, let me slap your mama. Well, you shouldn't do that. Well, that's my truth. Here's what Exodus is saying. God has been the same all the way through. He's faithful. And when Jesus showed up, he was just as true as what God said about himself in Exodus 34. You see integrity all the way through. He's the same. He's the same. So John making, again, helping us understand what is his purpose in this gospel? Believe Jesus and have life in his name. That's his purpose. We'll come back to that over and over and over and over again. So why is John wanting you to know that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and we've seen his glory, and he's full of grace and truth. You want to know why? Because if you want grace and you want truth, you better go to the person who's full of it. If you want grace, if you want truth, you better go to the source of it. If you want life, if you want light, you better go to the source of it. And the reason why so many of us live empty lives because we don't go to people who are full of what we need. But John is saying, that's Jesus. Jesus is full of the very things that you need. Isn't it what you need? What your heart needs more than anything is steadfast love and faithfulness. That's what you need. And John says, that's what Jesus came to provide. And the reason why I wanted to show you Exodus 34 is because God said that about himself. And when Jesus shows up, they're thinking, hold up. This is what God said about himself. And you're full of those things. So you must be God. John 1 15. Next verse. Back to John 1. John. Now remember, this is John the witness. The second John. John the Baptist. John bore witness about him, Jesus, and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now you may wonder why in the world are the parentheses there? 
Now, I preach out of the ESV. It's one of my most favorite translations. It's the one I study. It's a really accurate English word-for-word translation. Not every translation is word-for-word. Some are sentence-for-sentence or thought-for-thought or paragraph-for-paragraph. But I always like to study one that's word-for-word. So ESV is a word-for-word. Even the old King James is a word-for-word. NASB, there's several word-for-word translations, which sometimes may not make as much sense in English, but they're the most accurate because those literal words are there. So if you read some that are like the NLT, which is the New Living Translation, that's more of a paraphrase. And so you're going to get some words that may not be there. So when you read an ESV, and not all translations put the parentheses around there, and you're like, okay, why, why the parentheses? Well, the translators of the ESV were trying to call attention to the fact that verse 15 feels like it's out of place. And this is what we did a few weeks ago. Remember John 1, 1 through 5 was talking about the word, how the word, uh, and then the light, and then John uh, 9 through 13, we did last week about the true light. Well, right in the middle in John 6 and 8, it was about John the witness. So it felt like, hold up, with Jesus, John, Jesus, and now verse 15, you got Jesus, John, Jesus. And so the translators of the ESV put parentheses around it to, to help you understand, hey, this may feel like it's out of place, but they're calling attention to it because John the apostle put it there on purpose. It's not, it's not a mistake. It's it, Parentheses is just a way to emphasize here. And this is what he's saying, again, about John the witness. We'll get more into this next week as we do 19 through 28. But John the witness bore witness about him, about Jesus. And this is what he says, and this is what's so important. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. See, there's an idea, uh, and, and this even happens in birth order, right? Like, who was first is best, or who was first is superior. And, and again, even in Old Testament times, the oldest son would take care of the family. And so first was best, or first was superior, ranked higher, right? And, and this is just true in business, or this is true in, in just almost anything. Like, if you're first to the, to the beach, if you're first to the field, if you're, you're first, and so therefore you got more credibility than others because you've been there longer, Right? This is like when you've been working at a place for 10 years and you're kind of in your rhythm and then a new person shows up and starts making you look bad. You're like, bro, I'm first. I was here first. You don't need to show up and make me, you're, like, you're actually like working nine to five. We work like kind of nine to five. I'm first here, right? It's, it's that kind of superiority idea. But what's so interesting, and again, we'll get into this more next week, and I, oh, I just can't wait for you to get into it with me. What's so interesting is even though John the witness was before him, he understood that Jesus was before him. Jo John the witness is saying, in the parentheses is calling out, don't get it twisted. Even though John the witness was first, Jesus was actually before him. And, and it's this kind of stuff that's mind-blowing when you think about Jesus. Let me give you another example. We'll get into this later in the Gospel of John. When Jesus tells the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. It was at that moment that the Pharisees picked up rocks to stone Jesus because he just claimed to be God. And this is when they're like, bro, you're Joseph's son. 
You're a carpenter. What do you mean before Abraham was, you was? I mean, that's the idea of the verse, bad English, right? But, but this is what I'm trying to point out to you. Do you know how healthy it is for you to know the right order? Do you know how emotionally it healthy it is for you to know who you are in comparison to who Jesus is? You're not first. And yeah, Ricky Bobby was right. If you're not first, you're what? Last. But what did Jesus say? The last shall be what? First. This is why I laugh. And, and I'm Baptist and I you know, went to a Southern Baptist seminary, so I feel like I could say this. But it makes me laugh that every church that was started in a new town, they called it First Baptist Church. And I've said this before, but if I ever start another church or one day when I'm done with my 40 years of pastoring you guys and you put me out to the pasture, I'm going to go start a new church and I'm going to call it Last Baptist Church. And my tagline is going to be, you guessed it, the last shall be what? First. I just think that's hilarious. Now, I'm not saying First Baptist Church is a bad name. Please don't. I'm friends with all the pastors around here of First Baptist Churches or First United Methodist, or First, you know, whatever. Can't think of it. And I didn't want to be heretical by, like, dropping something that I have to go back and edit out later. But, but isn't it just natural that we want to put ourselves first? Well, John the witness doesn't do that. He says, this is the one of whom I said. He, he comes after me. In historical, chronological, chronological order, but he ranks before me. He's more superior than me. Even though I'm six months older than him, he's about six billion years older than me. And six billion is a drop in the bucket because God doesn't have an age. He's before me. The Greek word there is protos. He's first in a series. He's preeminent of high rank, foremost, best, superior to all compared to. He's first. He's monogenes. He's one of a kind. There's no one like him. Verse 16 and 17. And then John the apostle goes on, parentheses over, all right? For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, this is kind of what I was referencing earlier when I said he was full of grace and truth. He's full of both of those things. He's full of steadfast love and faithfulness. He is full of everything that you need. And now John the apostle says, and from that fullness, we have received grace. From that fullness, we have received, this is what I was highlighting last week if you were here, not achieved, not earned, not deserved, we've received it. We've received it. Now, if we receive something from someone, that means they have it to give, right? Well, how does he have it to give? Because he's full of it. And, and this is why the gospel is such good news. Let me, let me say it to you like this. Have you ever thought that you were going 
that God was going to run out of grace for you? You ever thought like that? If you haven't, you're either lying or you just haven't really thought much. I thought that all the time. Like so often I think that God is in love with a future version of me and that this version of me now, he's like, I'm done. I'm going to trade it in. I can't take it anymore. Because isn't that how we are with other people? But again, I joke all the time about marriage, but you did, not marriage the act- you did not marry the actual person in front of you. You married a future version of them that you hope they grew into. And when that relationship ends, the reason why it ended is because you had no more grace to give. And this is why when you say when you fall out of grace, right? Well, it was never grace if it's something you can fall out of. Because what is grace? Grace is getting what I don't deserve. It's, it's the love of God coming to me that I could have never earned. And so the good news about the gospel is God is so full of grace, he'll give you grace upon grace. He's full of it. He's complete. That's the idea here. He is completely full of grace. There is not an exhaustible resource. This is not like, oh, we got 10,000 years to run on our sun and it's going to explode or whatever scientists say is going to happen. No, this is inexhaustible. It's grace upon grace. In fact, what's very interesting to me as I was studying this, the word there upon is, I'm not saying it's a bad translation because I've just told you I love the ESV, but it, it can mean upon, but upon means something different to us than the force of what this word means. A better word would have been grace instead of grace. Grace instead of grace. And we know that because in the next sentence there, he says for. Well, anytime a sentence starts with the word for or therefore, I tell you this often, you say, what is it therefore, right? So for is not a complete thought. It's relying upon what was said before. And so he says grace instead of grace for the law was given through Moses. Here's what you need to understand. This is where most people misunderstand God. They misunderstand this. Again, this is why I'm showing you Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is mean. God of the New Testament is nice. I don't like the old one. I like the new one, right? The old one's all about law and judgment. New one's all about lambs and love. That's what people think, right? But I just, I don't know why I say these things, all right? But I just showed you in Exodus chapter 34, he was the same then. So what he's getting at here is when he says grace instead of grace, here's what you need to know. When he gave the law, that was grace. The law itself was grace from God. See, this is where people talk about the law and grace being opposed to each other. They're not. Why? Because the law itself was grace. Think about it. Not only is it grace in the sense that when I give my children rules, I give them rules as a grace to them. Like, hey, don't eat that mushroom. You could die from it. Hey, don't touch that stove. It'll burn you. Hey, don't play out by the yellow line. It's not going to go well for you. Those are all grace, right? Now, do we interpret that as grace? No. 
But not only is that grace, what, what people fail to understand when they talk about God like that is the law came after God had already freed them. No, notice that God gave the law after he had already saved them out of Egypt. So let me say it to you like this. Did God save them in Egypt because they were keeping the law? Nope. So it's a complete misunderstanding of God. And, and I love why John says it like this. He's saying grace instead of grace. For the law was given by Moses. See, the law that was given by Moses was grace. It was grace. But he says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace instead of grace. What is he saying? He was saying the law was grace. But now we've been given a greater grace. See, the, the tabernacle was grace. That was God's Shekinah glory presence, but it wasn't God's person. See, that was grace, but Jesus showing up in the flesh is more grace. This is grace instead of grace. So you want to know all you've ever gotten from God is grace. That's all you've ever gotten. Now, if you don't trust in Jesus, one day you will get judgment. You will get judgment instead of grace, but right now, You've gotten grace right now, first by the law, and now by Jesus showing up, grace instead of grace. I've wrote it out like this. In fact, if you're taking notes, I want to write this. You might want to write this down. Grace was substituted for grace when Christ substituted himself for us. See, grace was substituted for grace, grace instead of grace, when Christ substituted himself for us. Let's think back to the law here. See, Moses goes up to the mountain, right? Mount Sinai. And the Bible says that literally the idea is God wrote the law. And, and what is the law made up of? Let me say it to you like this. What are in sentences? Words. Okay. Because when I ask those questions, you're like, I got to think of something real theological here. But almost always when I ask them, just go to the basic thing that comes to your mind. All right? Words. So the law is made up of words. And when God wrote words with his finger on stone tablets, that was God's word being made flesh. Right? That was God's word descending down. But instead of it being on people, it was on tablets. That's why it was a grace. The problem with that, though, is people, when they read those words, their hearts are the same. They're stone. Right? The hearts are the same. They're stones. Which is amazing because God says in the Old Testament that he, instead of writing on the stones, he will write on our hearts. Grace. And what God this, this time did, instead of writing his word on stone, he wrote his word on flesh. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. 
And he was full of grace and truth, grace upon grace. So God substituted grace in the place of grace. Why? So that you and I could actually finally understand the words. Because here's what I know and here's what you know. Words out here on a tablet will never change me. This is why you can quit going to the self-help bookstore, which I don't even know if you do that anymore. You can quit going to the self-help section on Amazon. 84% of all books now are sold on Amazon. You can quit going there because words out there ain't going to do nothing. Words in here will do something. Well, how does that word get in there? That word gets in there when you understand that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among you. He put on flesh so that you could read him and know God. Look at verse 18 here, John 1, last one. No one has ever seen God. No one, even Moses, did not see God. He just saw the trail of him. He didn't see God. But notice right after that is a semicolon. No one ever has seen God. Semicolon. The only God who is at the Father's side. Now, those of you that know English, is the phrase the only God referring to what came before the semicolon or what came after? What came after? Because the semicolon is there. So what I'm saying to you is the phrase the only God is not description of no one has ever seen God. The phrase, the only God, is a description of the word. So it reads like this. You can't say no one has ever seen God, the only God. It reads like this. No one has ever seen God, semicolon, the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Remember I told you earlier, only, mono, gnase, one of a kind. Here's what John's saying. The word out here never changes you. The word in here changes you. Well, how can I know God? Only God can make God known. Words on a stone, although they were a grace, were not enough to make God fully known. God, the only God, the monogenes, the only son of God who is at the father's side came to know to make God known. This is what Jesus is going to say later on in the gospel of John, when they say, just show us the father and it'll be enough for us. And Jesus says, have I not been with you long enough? If you have seen me, you have seen the father. Why? Because Jesus is God. He is the word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? To get the words off of the stone and into our hearts. To write it on our hearts. He put on flesh and dwelt among us. The book of Hebrews says he needed to become like us. Why? Because God can't die, but flesh can. So he put on flesh. He took what we were, flesh, so that we could, this is what I told you last week, so that we could become 
in relationship to God what he was. The son of God became a son of man so that the sons of men could become sons of God. So this is why John wants you to know there is no one else like him. He's the only one. And then I love this phrase, the only one who has made him known. Let me ask it to you like this. If you had an option to take a trip somewhere, to travel somewhere, I know we couldn't do that much in 2020, and you were going to go to a foreign country, would you take the advice of a travel agent who could tell you about it, but who's never been there? Or would you take the advice of a native person from that country who came here? Which one would you listen to more? The one who's native from there, right? And you would go back to the travel agents like, listen, you're nice, you're pretty, you know, it's great. And you got a lot of good ideas about that place. But I'm going to go to the, with the one who's been there, who's from there, and tell me about it. See, that's what makes Jesus unique. There's a lot of religious people and religions who will tell you about God. They will speak of enlightenment. They will speak of incarnation. They will speak of, you know, coming back to life. They will speak of all those things about God and heaven and truth. And this is what every self-help book does. The way to fullness, the way to steadfast love and faithfulness. But they're all travel agents who's never been there. Because Jesus is the only monogenes. He's the only one of his kind who came from there to here. Why? To make him known. And that word there, known, I, I love it. We talk a lot about this around our staff. Is the Greek word literally, and I did not know this before, is the Greek word where we get our English word, exegesis. Now, in seminary, they taught me how to exegete the word. And what exegesis means is to interpret the word correctly, to know it. And so the process of, this is why I try to preach the way I preach, just taking it line by line, verse by verse. Here's what this word means. Here's what this word means. That's, that's exegesis. Here's, I'm trying to interpret it correctly for you. But there's a lot of people trying to exegete God who don't know him. They're misinterpreting him. But see, only the one who knows him can interpret it correctly. Because he's been with him forever and he is him. And we talk about even in our groups, like the point of our groups is to exegete the word. And so we have a real simple process that we like our groups to do is reap, read, examine, apply, pray, because that's a real easy way to learn how to read, uh, to exegete the word, read it and then examine it, apply it, pray about it. But we also want to teach our groups to know how to not only just exegete the word, but exegete the world around them. What that means is this, to know their neighbor. But think about this. How can I know my neighbor if the word never becomes flesh to my neighbor? 
if, let's just say it like this, Christ is not here now, right? And the church is called the body of Christ. So how can my neighbor ever know the word unless the body makes the word flesh among them? Unless the church doesn't take what they believe and make it real to their neighbor, make it flesh to their neighbor. This is why we give you those life on mission opportunities. This is why we give you, like, like we talked about earlier, this is why we want our communities to say, we may not believe what you believe, but please don't leave because our community is better because you're here. So every life on mission opportunity we have, every time you as a group or as a Christian serves your neighbor, that is the word becoming flesh and dwelling among them, being full of grace and truth. So do you get what I'm saying when I think about that as a practical application? Well, here's what John says. That's exactly what Jesus did with you. He took the word who was the co-eternal word. He was always that. And he moved into your neighborhood. He moved into your house. He moved into your world. To exegete. So that you could properly understand God. So that you could know God. And this is why he's unique. And so today... If you don't know God, you can receive grace if you just see the word made flesh. In the same way, your neighbors can know God if they see you as the body of Christ making this word flesh in their presence too. So tell me, I say this often, I'll probably say it a thousand more times. Tell me anybody who is like Jesus. There's not. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us grace instead of grace. When you gave the law, that was grace. Because you wanted us to know how to live. But when we couldn't keep the law, just like Adam and Eve, you gave them a command and they couldn't obey it. You covered them. You gave them more grace. Grace instead of grace. And today, God, in Jesus, you gave us grace instead of grace. Because where we deserved judgment and punishment, you sent the word to become flesh, to dwell among us. And then he substituted himself for us so that we can get grace instead of grace. And if we will re receive and believe Jesus, we will receive grace. God, there's no message like this. As we close, am I looking around or talking? I want you to understand today that you can receive grace instead of grace. If you will simply see, and if God has opened your eyes to see the truth that God 
has been the same. His steadfast love and his faithfulness, he has been the same. And his heart has always been for you to know him. And it meant so much to him for you to know him that he put on flesh and dwelt among you so that you could know him. And then he substituted himself for you. And today you can receive grace and trust Jesus and be saved. So if that's you, again, nobody looking around or talking, if you want to trust Jesus today and be saved, you can pray with me. You don't have to do it out loud. It goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me that you sent your son Jesus in my place for my sin. In grace, Jesus substituted himself for me. And I receive that today. I believe in Jesus as the only one, the only way. I ask you to forgive me, and I'm trusting in him alone. Now, if you just pray that with me, again, nobody looking around or talking, if you're in one of our locations, you can just simply lift your hand up and let us know because we want to give you a gift. Thank you. we got men and women going to walk around, put a gift in your hand, and when they do, you can put it down. But if you're watching online or in one of our physical locations, in just a moment, you have an opportunity to get a digital connection card and let us know that you trusted Christ so we can follow up with you. But if you've already trusted Christ, as always, I want to encourage you. If you're in Christ, you will always get grace instead of grace. And so if you feel like God's grace is running out on you, I hope you're reminded today that his grace is fuller than you could ever imagine. It's completely full and it never runs dry. In fact, after every deposit of grace into your account, it doesn't subtract from God's. So God will give you grace instead of grace, grace instead of grace, because he's full of it. And so if you're struggling with that, you can just be reminded again today that God is not in love with some future version of you. If you're struggling with guilt and shame and doubt, you can hear God say for you to you, I have grace for you because you're in Christ. That's the God that Jesus came to make known. Father, thank you for being this kind of God. And God, I pray that myself, all of us would get to know you like this, to get to know you as this kind of God who gives grace instead of grace. There's no one like you. Thank you for loving us in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you, church.